Thank you, Rob. Well, it's great to see you all, and Happy New Year to you. Um, yes, yeah, wonderful, isn't it? Just anyone enjoy the break between Christmas and New Year? It worked particularly well for me this year. Me and a few other church leaders are campaigning. I think I've been encouraged to campaign already this morning when I shared this. But Christmas Day should always be a Sunday, I reckon. It was just fabulous. We're going to change the date and just have it as a Sunday because it worked so well this year. Um, got a proper break between Christmas and New Year. It was just lovely. So that's, that's my recommendation. Um, if you came expecting the tree still to be up and you were hoping for that, I'm sorry, it's gone. Packed away. Uh, and perhaps at home as well, you've packed away your Christmas decorations. They've come down and, and you've scratched your head and thought, well, the house looks a little bit bare now. Maybe we need to buy some lights and stick them up somewhere or, or some decorations and decorate a little bit more because there is that feeling after Christmas. And one of the things I particularly enjoy about Christmas and doing Christmas together as a church community is that we get to read the stories in the Gospels together. We get to center around the stories of Jesus for a few weeks as we look together at who he is and, and the events that happened around his birth. You know, because often we can talk about many different things, but talking about Jesus and centering on the Gospel stories is so important. And, and actually, as I've reflected on those this year, I, I believe it's important to stay a little bit longer, to, to linger longer, if you like, looking at Jesus. And hence the the graphic that's up on the screen, to see Jesus as we start this year together. And I've got a Bible reading which really just picks up just after the Christmas story. Just after the Christmas narrative, Christmas is packed away, shepherds have gone, angels have gone, Joseph, Mary, we're going to read from there. And we're going to have a look at Jesus together. And I want you to listen now. It's quite a long reading. I've edited it a little bit just to, for time, taking out some of the, the speech parts. But I want you to listen out and and look on the screen at some of the characters that are involved in this story we're going to read together that occurs just after the Christmas narrative. And it's all about today, it's all about Jesus at the temple. Jesus at the temple. I'm going to look at two times when Jesus was at the temple, and we're going to see what we can learn from those. So it goes like this. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law, of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now there was an, a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. And it goes on from there with a whole load of things that Simeon said about Jesus, prophesying over who he was and uh, what he would do. It goes on from there. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, oh no, hang on, where are we now? There we go. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phenuel or Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was then a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. That's the first story 
Jesus at the temple as a baby. The second is this, and it's just a, a screen and a bit, this one. It goes on like this. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So the scene is set. The temple in Jerusalem. Paul's already prayed for Jerusalem and and the people there. Uh, But the temple in Jerusalem is the scene for today's narrative. And we're going to look at these two incidents and see what we can learn from them as God's speaking to us today. And I actually want to do this in reverse order. So to start with the second story and end up at the first. I want to start with the child Jesus, 12 years old, sitting, chatting to these scribes and religious leaders and talking with them and debating with them, asking them questions, I guess being asked questions as well because it talks about the answers he's giving. And, and he's getting a chance to, to probe and to discuss and to talk with these people. And that's the scene. Mary and Joseph have lost him and they're coming back to find him in the temple. And the first thing I notice in this story as we're going backwards through it is this phrase that Jesus asks. This, this sort of question that he asks, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I just want to look at this phrase. And then we'll come back to the whole scene that's around it. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? That had to be is one word in the original Greek. It's just one word. And it's a very common word in Luke's gospel. It's a hundred and something times in the New Testament. Forty of those are in Luke. And Luke has this sense, he's writing to us about the compulsion of God as God compels his plan to be outworked. And Jesus really is saying, God has a bigger plan. I had to be here. It was important because God is at work in doing something right now. He's, he's doing something that's significant and overarching and he's got a plan and this is part of it right now. I had to be in my father's house or about my father's business, another version will say. I'm not sure what 2016 was like for you. Rob's already said that not a lot changes with the changing of a calendar. Other than our hope levels rise and we think, oh, that one's done, maybe I can start again. But actually, not a lot changes quite often. But I want to encourage you with this. God is working out his purposes in 2017. And he won't be boundaried by a calendar date or the page or the, the, the swipe on your phone as you go through day after day after day. He's not boundaried by that. God is still at work. And he's working out his purposes. I want to notice also on this that it's not just that God is working out his purposes, but that Jesus has a part to play in it. I had to be in this place. I have to be in my father's 
house. Jesus knew his part in God's plan. And I think that's linked to also to that last bit of the phrase. It says that in my father's house. Jesus didn't only know that God had a plan, that he was part of it, but he also knew why he was part of it. And that's because he knew God as his father. If you're not sure about who God is today, or if you struggle with the concept of God as father, I encourage you to look at this and to, to be just so blown away by the thought that God adopts us into his family. He chooses us and brings us in and welcomes us. We're not accidents. We're not mistakes. There's no sense that we shouldn't be part of God's family, but he actively welcomes us to come into his family. He says, I choose you and I adopt you and you're mine. And Jesus knows that he's in his father's house. He's slightly different, of course. He's the son of God. The word of God made flesh. So his sense of God as father is slightly different and we're we're joined in to the same family because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus knew his identity. That gave him a sense of purpose because he knew how to live. And I realize that many of us spend an early part, a significant early part of our years wondering what we should do. What life should I live? I've been told I couldn't do anything, and which, which actually as we grow older we discover isn't true. There are some things which we're maybe genetically not programmed to do. Some of us would make great athletes, some of us wouldn't. You know, those sort of things. Some of us would make great neurosurgeons, some of us would probably better not be, look inside people's brains because we're maybe a little bit more clumsy um, or forgetful. And I open up and go, what was I here for? And you knew there was something I was doing. And so we, we kind of, this, this thing we're told when we're young, which you can be anything, isn't quite true, and we grow to discover that as we get older. But I think actually a better question isn't what life should I live, but how should I live? How should I life, live the life God's given me? How should I get on living this life? And if I know who I am and I know that God's got a plan, actually what life I should live will flow out of how I should live the life that God's given me. Because God will bring choices your way and there'll be decisions you can make and things you can do as you're living the life God has already given you that will then direct your steps for the future. Too often we focus on the what, not the how. And Jesus was living in the right place, in the right way, because he knew who he was. He also knows the timing. And an amazing part of this story is that Jesus is saying, I'm in my father's house. And immediately after this, he goes home with mum and dad. Just amazing. He goes home with mum and dad and lives obediently in their home. He knows that his time hasn't yet come. The beginning of that story is, is of Mary and Joseph going to Jerusalem. And it's quite possible to lose sight of Jesus. The story is quite an amazing one, really, because they, they go to Jerusalem. They're part of a large group, a large family group. And, and every year... Uh, well, several times a year, people are encouraged to go to Jerusalem and uh, to, to celebrate at the festivals. Mary and Joseph have done this. They've taken Jesus, they've taken other family members, and they've gone to celebrate the festival. And then they're going home again. They've done Passover, they're on their way back. And as they're packing up with their large group, Mary, maybe and Joseph, but Mary thinks that somebody's got Jesus. I suspect Joseph also thinks that somebody's got Jesus and that he's part of the group. But as they go a day away from Jerusalem, they discover that no one's got Jesus. Kind of careless. 
I know. And you might think that would never happen, but I know folk that this has happened to. And there's people in this church even it's happened to, and I know of folk, and there's, there's still the odd story. When this has happened, it's usually because parents have two cars, and they've arrived at church separately, and they go home separately. And they, I've heard the story of two parents, and they should remain nameless, arriving home on a drive, cars simultaneously, looking at each other and going, I thought you had so-and-so. No, I thought you had so-and-so. So one of them will leave and drive back to church and pick them up again. So this is not an unknown story. The difference here is they've gone a day already. They've gone a whole day and they've not noticed. Maybe this is why we sing carols about Jesus being sort of not making a noise in the manger and gentle and quiet and no noise he made because he was just kind of slipped in amongst the crowd. I don't know. Some kids you would notice if they weren't there for a day. You really would. Um, An hour. But it's possible to lose sight of him. You know, and some of us maybe have lost sight of God altogether. Maybe we've lost sight of him altogether. We started out and we've ended up somewhere and you look around you now and you're a bit like Mary and Joseph and, and, but you look around you and you go, Where, where's God gone? Because it felt like he was with me and it doesn't feel like he's with him anymore. Where, where's he gone? Where is he? And I speak to many people who feel like that. And at times I may have felt like that. I have felt like that myself. Where I've lost sight of where God is and what he's doing. And the secret is, is always that God's never left me. <laughs> it's always that I've moved on somewhere. Because what happens is sometimes we set off without God in our lives. Maybe you haven't lost sight of him altogether, but every day, and maybe even this year, You've started already and you've set off without God. Now, theologically, God is always with us. Conceptually, theologically, the truth is that God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. As Christians, as followers of his, the Holy Spirit lives within us. He's not, we don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to come to church to experience God. That's not why we're here solely. We're here to be a community of people together experiencing him together, something that we can't do on our own. But on our own, we still can know that God is always with us. He never walks out on us. He never leaves us. So it's not a theological truth. It's an experienced one where actually sometimes we lose track of the fact that God is with us. And we live our lives as if he isn't. And we set off somewhere and we move on. And it's only as we get into our day or our week or our year that we realize we're doing it by ourselves. If you've ever got somewhere, got through a week, and you've discovered that it was really hard work, and God, I just felt you felt more anxious about it, there was more stress coming, you were more worked up about it, I suspect it's because you entered into it without Jesus, without acknowledging Jesus. That we've, the times we get worked up about stuff, it's usually because we've set off without God. So what do we do? Well, I want to encourage us. This year, I've just uh, been reading about an Ignatian practice of reflection. Some of you will know this, which is where you pause, you take times in your day to pause and, and just look back a little bit. You, you look back and you see where, where was God in the last day. Maybe you could do this at the end of the day. There's an article, as Rob said in the magazine, about giving thanks, about starting the day declaring God's love and ending it with declaring his faithfulness. Well, maybe at the end of the day is a good place to do this. Or the start of the next one when you're looking back on the previous day. But look back and say, 
Where was God? Where did I encounter Jesus in my previous 24 hours? Where were the signs of God at work? Where was he answering prayer or turning up or doing something unexpected? Where did I see him? And just pause and reflect and say, God, where were you? And then ask the question, where did I miss him? Where did I get a little bit distracted and miss where God might have been? And then again to pause and reflect. And then simply to pray, Lord, help me see you more at work. Now, there's more to it than that, but very simply to just come and look back and see, God, where were you? What were you doing? To give thanks for that, but also then to to look at the times we've missed him, because I think so often we can set off without God. The thing we also see in this story is that when we lose sight of God, it feels like it's his fault. You notice? Mary and Joseph, they've lost God. How could you do that? But they arrive back in Jerusalem, and the question that Mary asks is a brilliant question. She says, son, why have you treated us like this? It's your fault. He could have said, I'm not the one who lost God, am I? Because I know where I am. You just lost me. He could have said all sorts of things that were flippant at that time. He doesn't. He makes a very serious comment back. But it feels like often it's God's fault when we've lost him. When, when our relationship with God changes and it feels as though he's not as close anymore, it's not as intimate anymore, it feels like it's all his fault. And we wander around and say, God, where have you gone? And, and there's a few things going on. One, is though, one of those is that relationships change over time and how we feel about them changes. And our connection with God is a relationship. It's not just we go and we do some stuff and we walk away again. Actually, God wants us to relate to him and know him. And as in any deep and personal and meaningful relationship, our feelings come and go and ebb and flow. And that's normal. And that's okay. We should expect that. But a second, more troubling thing happens as well, is I think we can take the familiar for granted at times. When God becomes familiar to him, there's a point at which we can take him for granted. Now, a very flippant example. Um, I've mentioned before You'll have forgotten about this probably. But when I was 16, I bought myself a stereo. Worked all summer to buy it and uh, very proudly got my stereo. I put CDs on, or what was it, tapes probably at the time. Tapes on, loudly, uh, loud as I could, turn the bass up full, watch the speaker cones go in and out. I loved it and felt the force of it. It was fab- waited till my parents were out. Um, but it was fabulous. And uh, loved having this stereo. Now, I still have the same stereo. I quite like looking after things. Um, it's survived. It's not broken. It's not done anything wrong. It's had bits added to it. I can plug my phone into it, and it works, and we play music through it today. It's absolutely fine. The speaker cones still go in and out. It still works beautifully. Thankfully, we live in a detached house, which is great. So you can turn up the noise, and off it goes. Courtesy of the church. We're living in a church home, and it's wonderful. So the neighbors don't get disturbed, and it's amazing. Um, Now, that stereo no longer occupies a sort of excited place in my heart. When I walk past the cabinet, I don't look in and go, oh, isn't it great? I don't polish it. I don't do anything to it. It's just an ancient piece of technology that's, you know, wired together and just about still works. That's what it really is. And we probably should change it, but it's still working and I can't be bothered. I've taken it for granted. The same thing 
that when I was 16, I polished and delighted in and was so excited, I anticipated buying it, and I bought it, and I really enjoyed it. Now it just sits in a cabinet, and I walk past it every day and don't even think about it until writing a sermon and trying to think of something that I now take for granted. My stereo hasn't changed. It's not done anything wrong. It's not walked away, it's not left me, it's not abandoned me, but I now take it for granted, even though it's doing the same job it did all those years ago. In, in a roughly, vaguely analogous way, God hasn't changed. He's still in our lives. The excitement that we had about him, we can still have, but we sometimes just take the familiar for granted. We do it in relationships, don't we? There's people, as I've been reflecting on the people that I love and care for, that are times I've taken for granted. And I'm really sad about that. I'm sad about how when, when people are, we're up close with people, sometimes I can be so focused on doing a job that you miss the people that are around you that you're doing it with. And always the relationships are more important than the job you're doing. Sometimes we take important things for granted. It's possible to lose sight of God. Just a little brief point, if we can. I don't know if something's happened on the screen. Alan, can you click on to the next one for me, please? Thank you. Just a little brief observation, really. That whole group visited Jerusalem. All of them went, all of them left, but only Jesus stayed. It's a simple question. Are we visiting or are we remaining? When when it comes to our relationship with God, do we visit him or do we remain with him? You see, the invitation with our walk with Christ is to remain with him. Jesus in John 15 talks about the vine and the branches and tells us that we can remain in him, that we're called to be part of him and he part of us. And and there's this this deep and intimate connection where he says, I'm the vine and my father's the gardener. You're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. And you know, there's sometimes when, when that picture, that analogy, just seems so true and yet so distant at the same time. When it feels as though sometimes you're like the branch and God feels so far away, and it's as if you've been cut off and you're kind of jump, trying to jump back to God again. Jump yourself back into the tree somehow, and it's not like that. But the invitation is to remain with God, to be with him all the time, to be aware of him. When Brian was preaching last week, he spoke about uh, carving out some time to pray. And he he referenced the verse about praying continually and was encouraging us to to spend five minutes even with God, just to take that time. And I want to go a step further, not just to lengthen that, but to say, take that five minutes and use it not just to rabbit stuff off before God. Because sometimes we can do, and Brian wasn't telling us to do that either, but just to be in his presence, to be simply with our Father, to be with him, to remain with him. Because relationships aren't built terribly well if you just read your shopping list to somebody. If Judith and I sat down and the only communication we had was to read a to-do list to each other, that wouldn't build our relationship much. Sometimes you have to do that, but it wouldn't build you up much. If I just go to God and say, God, right, I've only got five minutes. I'm going to give you, give you it straight. You know, I've been feeling a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of the other, and I'd really like you to do this, 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 please, by tomorrow. And I'm a bit worried about this, 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 this. Thanks a lot. Right, four and a half. Right, done. Gone. That, that's not really remaining and abiding and resting and being. If you've only got five minutes to spare, then spend it remaining with God. But don't just do it once. Take a slot midday, take a slot at the end of the day. Just take time 
to remain, to, to center again around who God is. In the other story that we're just going to come on to now, there's a lady called Anna who is in the temple courts, and she's been there a long time. She's remaining in the temple. Finally, the last point is that God reveals himself to those who seek him. In these two stories, we see four people who find Jesus. Now, Mary and Joseph, they lost God. They lost Jesus. Just imagine what that would be like. You know, it's bad enough if ever you've lost a child. Briefly, you've mislaid them. You had them, and now they're no longer there. I watch parents count children every week in this place. I see them go one, two, if they've only got two, one, two, three, if they've got three, one, two, three, four. You know how it goes. If, you ever take, if you're a teacher or you've done youth or kids work and you've taken a school trip out anywhere, you know that all you do is count for the entire day. I've done those trips and got home and I'm still running through my head up to one to whatever the number was because you spend the entire day going, hang on, Freddie's missing, where's Freddie? You know, and just chasing them round all day. Mary and Joseph, 12 years before this point, have had angels visiting, declaring who their child is to be, who they are to be, and what they're to do with this child. Just imagine being Mary and Joseph and you've mis- mislaid Jesus and you're imagining those conversations with the angels. And you're imagining a future, soon-to-happen conversation with another angel who turns up and says, where is he? Imagine what your response would be as you go, well, well, we had him. We did quite well for the first 12 years. It was going okay. He, he was wise, and he was growing in stature and wisdom and learning all sorts of stuff, but, but we just we lost him. Sorry. You'd kind of be nervous and and anxious about that. And we actually see some of that anxiety in Mary as she arrives in the temple. It's just a side point, I suppose, but anxiety is an interesting clue sometimes to something deeper going on. If you're anxious about things, just just ask the question why, because it's often connected with being out of control. Because our plans aren't working out, or our expectations aren't working out, or other people haven't done what they want, and Mary at this point is anxious and projects it onto Joseph. It says to Jesus, we were worried about it. Well, we don't know if Jesus was worried about it, but Mary tells us he was. And she also then tells Jesus off, and it's his fault, as we saw earlier. We project our anxiety onto others often, but in the end, they find him. You see, the simple truth is this, that God reveals himself to those who seek him. They were searching for Jesus and found him. In that first story, there was a, when Mary and Joseph take Jesus the baby to the temple to offer sacrifices and to dedicate him and to do all those sort of things. There's a man there called Simeon. And in that story we read, quite a long passage which was reduced down a little bit, the Bible tells us that Simeon was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means he's waiting for the Messiah, waiting for God's promises to come. He's waiting. Now, I've always assumed that Simeon is an old man who's a priest who's about to die, and he's, he's in the temple all the time. And none, none of those things need necessarily be true. It, the Bible tells us that he's a man in Jerusalem who's righteous and devout and he's waiting. And the Holy Spirit's on him and he goes to the temple as God prompts him to. It doesn't tell us that he's always there. It just tells us that he goes to the temple courts when God prompts him. It doesn't tell us that he's old. It just says that he's waiting 
to see the Messiah, and then once he's seen him, he can then die. We don't know if he's got another 70 years to live, or if that's the end of his life. But anyway, the, he, he's, we don't know much about this guy, other than that he's righteous, and he's got the Holy Spirit of God on him. And he's waiting on God. Now, there's a difference between waiting for God and waiting on God. And Simeon is waiting on God. If you're waiting for God to do something, I think there's a couple of ways you can do that. One, we can have a promise from God and we can remind God every now and then and go, God, come on then. What are you doing? I'm waiting for you. And then eventually we can give up and we go, well, I was waiting for God to do that. I'm still waiting. And it's the kind of waiting where you're waiting for a train which is late. or the kind of waiting where you're waiting for a parcel to come and it hasn't arrived yet. It's that kind of frustrating waiting. Are you waiting for dinner time? And it's not dinner yet. You know? I wish the time would hurry up and go. There's another kind of waiting which is not just waiting for but waiting on. And Simeon, I think, is waiting on God. He's got his ears open. He's perpetually alert to what God's saying. And as the Spirit directs him, this man in Jerusalem, he gets prompted by the Spirit, go go to the temple courts. Lizzie was prompted to go to a bookshop and ask about a book, ask God about a book, and to get a book and read the book. And then when she's got the book, she's prompted to do a course on it, and she's prompted to make a phone call to me to say, I'd, li- I'd like to do something with some people. And I said, Lizzie, that sounds a bit like a life group. She said, oh, yes, it does. And so she's leading a life group. With Elaine, it's great. Prompted by the Holy Spirit to do something, and, 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 but to do that, you have to be listening and open. And Simeon is. He's waiting on God, not just waiting for God. He's led by God and he's listening. So Joseph and Mary were searching. Simeon's listening and he finds Jesus too. The last one was Anna. This lady who was married for seven years and was then widowed. And ever since then, she's been in the temple, never left but worshipping day and night, fasting and praying. And Anna doesn't have it revealed to her by God that she should go to the temple. She's there already. She's not searching for, Mary and, for Jesus like Mary and Joseph are. She's just there watching, observing, listening, seeing. And because she's constantly in prayer and preparation. When Joseph and Mary come in and, come, come in and, and she sees Simeon lifting Jesus up and praying over him, she sees what's going on. Just going about her daily life, as she did every single day. And she just noticed that there was something happening, and she was drawn to it. And she goes and also gives thanks to God and proclaims who Jesus is. She finds Jesus that day because she's observing what God is doing in her everyday life. We've got three different sets of people, four people altogether, one of them desperately seeking, one of them who is listening to what God's saying, and one of them is just watching what God's doing in their everyday lives. I'm not sure where we fit, each of us, into this. We'll be somewhere in that, I guess. But all four of them found Jesus in the temple. Two were searching, one was waiting, one was ready, and all of them find him. I suppose my encouragement to us today would be this, is that we start a new year. If you feel that last year you had moments or periods of anxiety where you were stressed and out of control and things weren't going well, I encourage you to, today, before we go any further, to, to look to Jesus, to see him, to search after Jesus, to put him at the center, to find him again. 
And if you feel like you've lost God, then he's available to you today. If you feel like you've never known him, he's available to you today. If you feel like you've started off the year without him, well, let's do what Mary and Joseph did and stop and go back the way we came and come back to Jesus again and then set off again with him in our lives. Can we do that? Some of you will be old enough to remember a little phrase that we were taught, I was taught this at school. It's called the Green Cross Code. And in that, you were taught to how to cross a road. And the code went something like this. Stop, look, listen. Oh, you're all good boys and girls. Well done. You can go for your milk in just a minute. Stop, look, listen. It's good advice at the side of the road. It's good advice at the start of a year. When it comes to Jesus, let's stop. Let's look. Let's listen. Let's move on with him in the center of our lives.